Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If the spirit moves you, please subscribe to our show. So if you have been attentive listeners of this show, you will recall that we have done a couple episodes on various internecine fights between different factions of the right, including a recent dust-up between kind of first things in National Review and, and some other things. And one subject that kind of popped up during all that was the subject of integralism, which is some sort of radical Catholic perspective on politics. And so uh, we wanted to have someone on the show to talk about an integralism. And we, we asked a, a couple of people, I was trying to find someone who was either an integralist or sympathetic to integralism. Mel Gibson? And- well, uh, you know, I was not able to ask Mel Gibson, but I did ask a number of different people and for one reason or another was not able to get anyone to come on the show. I issued a warning, which was if no one sympathetic to integralism was going to come on the show, then I was going to have John Zmirak come on to trash it. So John Zmirak, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm senior editor at stream.org and my most recent relevant book is The Politically Incorrect Guide to Catholicism. In addition to that, you are also the author of a great series of books, The The Bad Catholic's Guide. This is The Bad Catholic's Guide to Catholicism, Bad Catholic's Guide to the Catechism, Bad Catholic's Guide to the Seven Deadly Sins, and uh, one about drinking, I believe. The Bad Catholic's Guide to Wine, Whiskey, and Song. Yes, that's that's probably my favorite one. Okay, so I just want to offer also a little trigger warning to the audience which is in this podcast, we're going to be discussing religion. And uh, we may even, you may, if you listen, you may even hear the name of uh, a couple of Catholic encyclicals. So uh, if you're not able to handle that, just go now and leave us a five-star rating instead. So let's start with uh, integralism. John, what is integralism? Well, I I think... I summed it up pretty well in an article I did at the stream that you can sum it up in two words, Catholic Sharia. Now, I don't mean that hyperbolically. I mean that rather literally, okay? When we talk about church and state, we quite legitimately say that we want the moral law to inform the public law up to a certain degree. Of course, we want things that violate people's rights like murder and stealing to be illegal, but we also want things. We want the law to reflect the best interests, the common good of the public, okay? So that's the reason you might put restrictions on things like pornography and prostitution, which don't overtly violate someone's rights. But because we're not radical libertarians, but conservatives, or you know, if you're speaking religiously, Christians, we want the law to reflect the common good. That's the reason that you want to outlaw, for instance, racial discrimination. You're willing to step on people's freedom of contract and freedom of association up to a certain point and say, I'm sorry, you may prefer to use your private property and your restaurant to only serve white people. We don't think that favors the common good. Just to clarify, because there are libertarians and liberals and others who would say that, no, 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 it's not the role of government to be enforcing morality. Actually, there was a time when liberals might 
have said that. Now, these days, liberals increasingly seem to be quite comfortable with enforcing morality as well. Well, the way they, but the way they do, the way liberals enforce morality without admitting it is they make up rights. They invent rights out of thin air and say, "Oh, well, we're protecting the right of every illegal alien to get a free sex change operation from the U.S. government because they have a right to it." Where does that right come from? Where do you derive the, these rights? The, the the language of individual rights is used to 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 describe every good thing we want. But in fact, there is no individual right to eat at a particular restaurant if the owner doesn't want you there. That's the wrong way to describe it. We as a society decide it doesn't suit our common good to have racial discrimination in public accommodations, so we're not going to let you do it. And we pretend that it violates people's rights, but that's nonsense. I don't have a right to make you clean my house for a certain price, and you don't have the right to force me to hire you, except but for the common good, we say there are certain restrictions we're going to impose. You can't hire a nine-year-old to mow your lawn. You can't hire illegal immigrants to clean your house. Believe it or not, that's still illegal. And you can't discriminate based on race. None of those things come from individual rights. They come from our concern for the common good. But because people feel like they're only allowed to talk about individual rights, we have to invent all these nonsensical circumlocutions to pretend that every good thing we want the government to do derives from individual rights. But that's not, in fact, the case. I, as a conservative and a Catholic, believe that the government should promote the common good and that we can know the common good. Another term for it is human flourishing by looking at natural law. Natural law is what we're able to know from the law that God wrote on the human heart using reason. You don't have to read the Bible to understand natural law. It's certainly helpful. It's a good shortcut. But all of the tenets of natural law theory can be derived by honest, reasonable reflection as long as you accept that there is a God and that we were created by God, which also we can know rationally, I believe. And the church teaches that. And I think you can know it. Maybe you can't convince everyone of it, but it is possible to know that there is a God who has a moral law, and he created us for certain purposes. These things can be known rationally. It's not sectarian because Jews believe this, Muslims believe this, Protestants believe this, Catholics believe this. This is not a sectarian belief. This is something that is knowable by reason, by reasonable people. That is the appropriate basis for legislation so that we can say, no, we don't want polygamy to be legal in our country. We don't think that pers- that furthers the common good. We're not going to have to make up some individual rights nonsense about it. It doesn't favor the common good. Letting people sell their kidneys on the internet doesn't favor the common good. Letting people form suicide clubs doesn't further the common good. Where integralists go off the rails is that they think they can go further than the natural law. They think we can take things that are not knowable by reason, that are knowable only through divine revelation, and make those things the subject of coercive public law. Let me give an extreme example. Imagine some Catholics said, well, Our Lady at Fatima condemned immodest dress and said that many souls go to hell because of immodest dress. Well, that's a revelation from God 
God is in charge of the universe. We want to save people's souls. So we are going to set up modesty codes and we're going to have police at street corners measuring women's skirts, seeing how high they are above the knee, measuring to see if men's pants are too tight. We want to enforce modest dress because our lady said so at Fatima. Why is that unreasonable? Because it is the subject of a revelation, not even a public, but a private revelation. But if your impulse is that the government is here to save everyone's souls and it can use divine revelation as a source for coercive laws, then you will let the visions of Fatima and every other approved apparition of the church be a source of public legislation. Now, what is the downside of this? Well, first of all, it's unfair. Divine revelation is something which we can't accept it by our own power. To acquire faith requires a gift of grace from God. It's an infused virtue, infused by the Holy Spirit. Not everyone gets that grace at any, in particular at any given moment. We believe as Catholics that everyone will be offered sufficient grace for eternal salvation at some point in his life. But we don't know if they've been given the grace to accept Catholicism, or even Christianity at any given moment. So for us to say, we're going to make laws that compel you and can compel your behavior, not based on individual rights and not based on the common good knowable by reason, but based on this revelation, which we believe is true. And you may not have the grace to believe it, but you have to trust us. This is true. And you're going to have to obey these laws or we will put you in prison. That seems unfair. It seems un- irrational to demand that people act on, on the basis of laws whose basis we can't demonstrate to them rationally, where we can't necessarily know whether or not God's given them the grace even to accept this thing, but we're going to make them act on it anyway. That seems arbitrary. And once you introduce arbitrary power and the imposition of force without reason into government, you're opening a Pandora's box because the Muslims have their own revelation. They believe that Allah made Muhammad the prophet and that the Sharia, which was revealed to him and developed in their Muslim tradition, is an eternal law applicable to the whole human race, which should be enforced everywhere across the planet. How are we any better than they are if we start doing that with the apparition of Fatima or even with papal encyclicals or the teachings of church councils. Those things also require divine grace to accept. So I don't think we're any better than Islamists if we do that. And that's why I call integralism Catholic Sharia. Okay. So and I want Doug as a Lutheran to uh, offer some reactions to this in a second, but before we get to that, let's take for granted that that's an accurate summation of what integralists want or whatever. I mean, it seems to me that integralism, uh, to the extent that it exists as you described it, is a pretty marginal thing, right? I mean, there maybe there are a couple people on Twitter, but um, I, I there are a couple of regular authors at First Things Magazine. Uh, well, uh, you would uh, say Thomas Pink, I guess. Is Thomas that- Pink, a- Adrian Vermeule. So that's a good question. What Adrian Vermeule, Harvard professor, you would say that you think he wants to enforce... Uh, he, has, he has said so. He said so. He calls himself an integralist. He calls himself an integralist, but I don't know 
So there's a couple issues that I that make me kind of wary here. One is okay. I'll I'll get. Let me prove that. Adrian Vermeule wrote supportively about the article in First Things that Rusty Reno published and then apologized for publishing, which said that it was correct for Pius the Ninth to take the Jewish child who'd been secretly baptized away from his parents and raise the kid as a Catholic. Vermeule said Pius the Ninth was right. Right. So th- th- this is uh, this is a a, a case. Uh, I guess like. 150, 170 years ago, something like that, back when yeah. the, pa- the papal states and kind of a weird, not exactly an up-to-date controversy. No, but it, but, it, but it makes the point because it says that the civil law should enforce well, the, te- was, the teachings of the Catholic Church. Right. Uh, so uh, as I understand it, and I don't want to get a, down a rabbit hole on this, as I understand it, the argument there had to do in part with the special circumstance that, you know, in the papal states, that was a government run by the Pope. So there was not any sort of even formal separation between church and state the way that you would find not only in the United States, but even in, you know, like Austria-Hungary or other things like that. Well, no, integralists don't accept the separation of church and state. They believe that that there should be separate institutions, but that the government but that the government should be infused with divine revelation. So, for instance, integralists in principle would support Louis XIV, who took Protestant children away from their parents to be raised as Catholic. And the principle here, which Thomas Pink laid out in an article in First Things, is that the church has jurisdiction over every baptized Christian, period. Right. And that in the in the past— the church had the government enforce this for it, but the church still retains this power even today, even after Vatican II. And Thomas Pink said in First Things, in an article called Conscience and Coercion, that the local bishop should have the power to use coercion against any baptized Christian whom he regards as a heretic. So that would mean every baptized Protestant would be under the jurisdiction of the bishop, and the bishop would have the power to use coercion. And the historical document that Thomas Pink cited, the kind of coercion that it talked about was imprisoning people. And Thomas Pink was citing that approvingly. So according to his own words, Thomas Pink, at least in theory, thinks that the Catholic bishop should be able to imprison Protestants for heresy because they are baptized Christians and therefore they're Catholics and therefore they're under his jurisdiction whether they want to be or not. So on Twitter, what I said was, the, I, and I would like some integralists to try to prove me wrong, their position says that if Franklin Graham goes to Chicago, Cardinal Kupich has the right to lock <laughs> him up for heresy. And I have not heard one of them say that they don't think that. They all say, oh, don't say that. That's silly. You're being a sensational. But none of them are willing to say that in principle, that's not justified by their position because it is justified by their position. Cardinal Kupich could lock up Franklin Graham. To me, any position which grants that outcome has got a flaw somewhere in the in the logic. Right. So I would agree with that. And just for listeners who may not be familiar with uh, all of the intricacies here. So Historically, you know, back in the day, there was a thinking in Catholicism that you know, if someone was baptized, the baptismal vows could be uh, legally enforced or coercively enforced as akin to a contract, right? Uh, that, that was the theory that, b- behind being able to do that. And it, there was also, I, I believe, you know, kind of a standard theory that ideally 
the state would support the Catholic Church in some way. It would be given some sort of privileged position and not necessarily where priests and bishops would rule, but where the, you know, the the kings and princes would be under their, you know, persuasion and sway or whatever. Well, remember that for centuries, uh, part of the coronation vow that French kings took was to exterminate heresy. Right. Officially, I guess, up until the Vatican, Vatican II. II in the 1960s, this was considered to be the Catholic doctrine. Well, it was, it was, cons- it was the ideal. And then it was also granted that, you know, in particular circumstances, that might not be practical. So, for example, in the United States in 1928, when Al Smith won the nomination for president and people in America, there's a long tradition of saying, well, you can't can't trust Catholics in political life because they're going to be under the direction of the Pope and they believe in theocracy or whatever. And so, you know, he wrote, which reflected current thinking was, well, no, no, no. And, you know, whatever the uh, hypothetical ideal might be as a practical matter, no, that would not be good for the United States. And then at the Second Vatican Council, the church in a document called Dignitatis Humanae said, no, there is a, a right to religious liberty and state shouldn't interfere with that consistent with public order. Right. And here's, here's, here's the problem. The notion that the church, either through the state or directly, should use force to persecute Christians who 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 believe her, what what the church considers heresy. That was never taught infallibly, but it was it was repeatedly said by popes over centuries. And when the church reconsidered the issue at Vatican II, there was a very big fight. And Archbishop Lefebvre, who founded the, the traditionalist movement that went off and celebrated Latin masses, his biggest objection to Vatican II was not even the liturgy. It was the change of policy on religious freedom. That was the issue that he claimed was a violation of Catholic tradition. Here's what's new about the about integralism now. Okay, now you have people like Thomas Pink who saying we can reconcile Vatican II and religious coercion. He thinks he found what I consider a loophole in Vatican II. In his argument, in First Things, but also in a philosophical volume, a fesh shrift that was devoted to John Finnis, he said, at Vatican II, the church renounced the state using violent coercion to suppress heresy. But all the church was doing was taking that right back for itself. So instead of the government arresting Franklin Graham for heresy, now the bishop would be able to do it and right. presumably he, would yeah. have his own church police. He would have that. his own paramilitary organization. Yeah, yeah. no, that is literally that. his argument. I, I read this Thomas Pink article. I did not find it terribly persuasive. I, I will say that it seemed to me to be motivated not out of a desire that Pink had to try and impose religious coercion, but because he wanted to try to reconcile older documents with current teaching, you know that I agree with you. Important. I agree with you, and I agree with you. I I, th- I thought it was a gallant effort to square a circle, um, and I think it's part of people. It's part of a move or tendency to exaggerate papal authority. Popes have said it would be a good thing to have a Catholic state and to suppress heresy. We want to believe what the popes say. They're sometimes infallible. We should just presumptively treat everything they say as infallible until proven otherwise. This kind of papal maximalism, I think, can't hold up historically. 
I think it's, you know, it's, it's an example of exaggerated filial piety. The Pope can speak infallibly on very rare occasions. There are two occasions we know for sure where the Vatican said this is an infallible statement. The Immaculate Conception of Mary in 1860 and the Assumption of Mary in 1950. According to the Vatican, when it was queried about this, there were six other occasions where the church, where the Pope said things that the Vatican as of 1950 considered to maybe fit the criteria for infallibility. And four of them were condemnations of Jansenism. And one of them was a condemnation of a heresy that Pope John XXII had taught. The next Pope came in and it specifically rebuked his for his predecessor over the issue of when we die, do our souls go to heaven or purgatory or hell? Or do they just go to sleep until the last judgment? Pope John the twenty second believed that they just go to sleep. And he went around preaching that and his own cardinals rebuked him and his successor issued an infallible statement condemning it. Um, but none of these statements had anything to do with separation of church and state or religious persecution. If you look back and I've got an article about this I published called The Myth of Catholic Social Teaching. If you go back over the centuries, you will find popes on both sides of a number of important issues, such as lending at interest. There were many popes and councils that said that all lending at interest was wrong. However, Pius Twelfth said it was okay. The Vatican Bank has been charging interest and paying interest for you know, 60, 70 years. That was obviously not an issue that was ever taught infallibly. But you'll find some cranky Catholics who still insist on that, that all lending and interest is usury. And then they'll usually tie it in with the Freemasons and then with the Jews and condemn the whole modern economy and say that you know, everything since the late Middle Ages has been a degeneration. Likewise on slavery. You've had popes condemn slavery outright, but you also had the Vatican under Pius IX in 1860 say that chattel slavery, meaning the kind of slavery we had in America, was not intrinsically evil. Arguments about economics. Pope Francis's statements on economics cannot be reconciled with Pope John Paul II's. People exaggerate papal authority in an effort to find a still point in a turning world. They, 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 they hope that the Vatican can be an oracle to which they can turn infallibly for answers to every political, economic, and social question. But that's not, in fact, apparently the way God set it up, or else you would have much more consistency on issues like this. And I, I think the important thing is the church teaches principles of morality. It teaches general principles of morality. And these things are almost all based on reason, human reason based, you know, drawing out the meaning of divine revelation. But the church does not provide you with a micro level manual of how to apply this in every single case. And especially economics and politics, you'll find the application has to change as circumstances change over the centuries. So for instance, the church tolerated serfdom where you were tied to a piece of land and you paid your Lord feudal dues in order to, to farm that land. If Donald Trump proposed to institute feudalism in America today, I think the Vatican would rightly say this is wrong. <laughs> okay, that's not a contradiction of the church's authority. That's the church learning from experience and applying general moral principles 
to particular cases differently as the circumstances change. So, Doug, uh, what do you think about papal authority? So, uh, you know, I, I guess what I'd say is you describe me as a Lutheran. I went to a Lutheran high school. Um, I currently go to a Baptist church. And so uh, I'm very much feeling like a dimmy in this conversation, not a dummy, a dimmy. Going with the uh, reference to Sharia law, uh, I'm feeling very much like a, a second class citizen in this entire conversation. And I think that would be my my pushback, obviously, on integralism is those of us who are more libertarian, who aren't Catholic, we're simply not going to go lightly into a system like this. I'm, I certainly hope you don't. I hope I made it clear that I don't approve of any of these ideas. <laughs> right, right. That I want to work with Protestants and Jews and Muslims to promote the natural law that's knowable by reason for the common good. I have some concerns there as well. I mean, uh, you. Uh, I, you know, as I as I just alluded to, I, I have a pretty strong libertarian bent. Uh, I consider myself a constitutionalist. I'm a lawyer by training. I like having constitutional rights. And you know, you just mentioned uh, different popes throughout time that have drawn different conclusions. And so I like the idea that natural law is something that we can all reason to. But I I don't really want to rely on that. I don't really want to rely on the majority, particularly the majority in this modern age, drawing their conclusions about what the common good is. And so there's some things that I prefer would simply be off limits for the government or the majority to do to me. I think the Constitution protects a very wide range of rights and very strongly limits what the state can do in terms of enforcing what it sees to be the common good. And I think that was intentional, uh, that the founding fathers were very suspicious of government paternalism. Um, at the same time, you know, the founding fathers didn't even get rid of established churches in the, in the, in the states. You know, that was done voluntarily by the states. The First Amendment only applied to the federal government. I'm glad we don't have established churches in the states. But if we're going to talk about the Constitution, you know, there were anti-sodomy anti laws were considered constitutional until the 1990s. So if you look at the founders' own notion of the natural law and the common good, they were not Reason Magazine libertarians. If anything, they were they were more like 1950s conservatives. You could disagree with them, but the founding fathers did not have in mind anything like Ayn Rand or Murray Rothbard. They had a notion of the of the natural law that was pretty thick. Yeah, and I, as, as a uh, I guess fundamentally uh, a Buckleyite, the idea of 1950s conservatism sits pretty well with me. <laughs> yeah, me too. me too. Me too. I'm basically a Pat Buchanan guy. You know, <laughs> I, I think uh, I, I'm. I'm I'm concerned that the I, the reason I think the rise of integralism is dangerous is it seems to tap into a kind of anti-Americanism and a kind of uh, escapism and futilitarianism. Our guest today has been the one and only John Smirak. Thank you for joining us. 